Amen and beautiful. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, if you uh, brought them with you, you're welcome to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to follow along in the Blue Bibles, page 1015. Although, as I sometimes say, it may be more helpful or easier for you uh, to track with me in the bulletin today, particularly because of verses that I'll refer to that I've placed in various parts of our bulletin this morning. Our uh, text today for uh, the sermon is found in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And this, these two verses here conclude a major first section of 1 Peter. Uh, what we're going to be doing is after this sermon today, or with this sermon today, we're going to hit the pause button on 1 Peter for the time in preparation to Christmas, and then we'll pick it up again right in the new year. We'll come right back to uh, 1 Peter and work our way through uh, the rest of it. But as I have tried to prepare us for, Peter's taking us up to a point in which he's going to give very specific and concrete instructions with respect to how do you live the Christian life in the midst of a world in which you find yourselves oftentimes being marginalized, uh, feeling like an exile in this world, like you don't belong, and Peter's going to say, okay, let's talk about how to live specifically in that. But in the meantime, what he has done in the entirety of this opening section is to, as I said last week, kind of shore up our sense of our identity, our status as the people of God. He's kind of tried to say, all right, let me give you the big picture of who you are so that when I tell you how to live in the midst of this world, you'll do that out of a proper sense of who you are in Christ. These two verses that I'm about to read for us are kind of the crescendo of that effort that Peter has taken since verse 1 of, uh, of the letter, as I'll point out to us over the course of this sermon. Uh, this is the living and the abiding Word of God that I will be reading for us. And as you will recall, not in your bulletin, but here's where we left off last week when we looked at verse 8. We saw that Jesus Christ himself was the cornerstone, chosen and precious of God, but not everyone believes in that. And those who don't believe that he is the cornerstone, chosen and precious of God are those who, in reality, instead of being built upon him as living stones, will find themselves stumbling over him. The verse ended like this. The, a, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That describes one group of people with response to the cornerstone but then he turns it and says, that's not you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. 
Great and merciful God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this declaration that you have made. We pray that you would be honored in it as we consider it, as we reflect on it today. We pray this, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. Sorry, I've got to take my coat off. There's a, uh, there's a piece of Velcro on the, uh, on the microphone that is grabbing at my coat every time I move. Sorry about that. Okay, as we begin this, here's the question today. Who are you? Who are you? Or concerning it on a personal level, who am I? How do you identify? Identity matters. How you understand yourself, how you perceive yourself to be in this world with respect to yourself, with respect to the world, with respect to the people around you, it matters. Now, the question of identity is one that is hot and pervasive in the world right now. People speak of all types of issues related to identity. You can talk about uh, identity politics. You can talk about racial identity. We can talk about gender and sexual identity. Uh, one of the things that you can be accused of today with respect to identity is cultural appropriation because you've taken something that belonged to somebody else and you've applied it to yourself, you've dressed yourself, you've carried yourself in such a way that you're really stealing somebody else's identity. And then, of course, we can talk about identity theft as well. Who are you? It is an incredibly relevant and contemporary question. We hear it all over the place. We think about it in our own lives as well. But here's at least what I want to say to us, and that is that the relevancy of that question is not new, nor is the task of trying to identify yourself something that is unique to our generation. This has been going on since the very beginning. Let me try and just show us that. In the Garden of Eden, one of the first tasks that we see Adam engaged in at the command of God is the task of identifying the animals that come in front of him. Who are these? What are these? What do you want to call this particular thing? Look at it. Consider its characteristics. Look at the way it moves, and you identify it. You name it to be something. And then, of course, there's nobody who is found suitable for him as a mate. He sees that they tend to come in twos, and he seems to be alone when God causes the sleep to fall upon the man, takes out the rib, creates this other creature whom God brings to him to see, what are you going to call this one? And he marks the identity and says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's who she is. She is woman. That's her identity. And of course, the fall takes place. And in the midst of the fall, we hear the curses that come from God upon the earth, upon the uh, serpent, upon the man and the woman. But we also hear, and certainly Adam heard, the promise that was in there that, you know what, his wife is still going to bear children, and in particular, one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so he turns to her after all of the curses, looks at her and says, you shall be called Eve. That's who you are because you are the mother of the living. 
Now let me put it in context with one other passage as well, just from Genesis chapter 4, one more chapter over. Remember that Cain asks an identity question, am I my brother's keeper? Is that what I'm supposed to be doing? Is that who I am? Am I somebody who watches after my brother? In the naming of Eve and in the question of Cain, we see two things. First of all, we see that, of course, identity is something that is very personal to us. It's important with respect to how do we understand ourselves? How do we make sense of who we are in this world with reference, as I said, to the world, to other people who are around us? But when you get into that name, Eve, when you get into the question that Cain raises, what we then immediately begin to realize is that identity isn't just a question about who I am in isolation, but it is also with respect to what am I supposed to do? What's my role? What's my responsibility in this world? Our identity is very connected with what we do, what our purpose is, what our mission is. How do we understand what we are required or what is required of us? This can sometimes be seen, uh, scripturally speaking, in just a name all by itself. Think, for example, uh, in scripture of Abraham. No longer shall you be called Abram. I'm going to change your identity, okay? But you shall be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. We could see this as well in the name, the, the name, the covenant name that God gives himself. But we can also see it, and perhaps as easily as any other place, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why was Jesus called Jesus? Well, he wasn't called Jesus because uh, Joseph and Mary thought this is a great name. A lot of people are named Joshua or Jesus, Yeshua. We should call our child this. We like the name. We like the sound of it. He was called Jesus because the angel said, God commanded, call his name Jesus. Why? Because attached to his identity is the work that he's going to do. And the work that he's going to do is he's going to save his people from their sins. And so name him Yeshua, name him Yahweh or Jehovah saves. That's what the name is that you're supposed to give him. And then, of course, Christ isn't his last name. It's his title. His title is Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who will fulfill all of the expectations that are, that are found in Scripture with respect to the anointed one. So from the first from word pages of Scripture, identity is a question. From the first verse of 1 Peter... Identity is an issue as well. Identity matters. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Take it in two parts. Peter, no longer shall your name be called Cephas. You, you'll be Peter. Because on this rock, I will build my church. That's what Jesus says, right? I, I'm going I'm to tweak your identity just a little bit. This will be your name. An apostle of Jesus Christ. 
one who has a specific and formal role and authority to represent Christ, to declare who Christ is, a sent one who bears witness. Let me make a parenthetical just statement right at the moment. How extraordinary is it that in what we were talking about last week, with the living stone being Christ, with us, the church, being living stones that are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, with a stone that the builders would trip over, that Peter didn't once reference his name. He didn't once reference himself in it. How easily it could have been thrown in right there as part of what he was saying. But this is testimony again to us that Peter's role isn't to be the rock. Christ is the cornerstone. His role is to bear witness to the rock, to bear witness to that good confession. And so that's what he does. He bears witness to the living stone that is Jesus Christ and to the church who are living stones as well. Peter thus identifies himself. I'm Peter. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's my mission. That's my purpose. Identity and mission go together. And the very next phrase in the very first verse of 1 Peter begins our identification. Peter doesn't write to exiles of the dispersion, to exiles who have been scattered all over the northern parts and reaches of Turkey. He writes to elect exiles. Elect exiles. Because he wants to begin to shape and to form who they are as a people. That is the effort that has taken place all the way up to these verses. It started in verse 1. It concludes where we are concluding today with verse 10. Who are you? By the mercy of God, Peter is saying, we have been born again into a new family, and that new family has moved into a new spiritual family home in which we are the stones that are being built up by the Lord. Now, sometimes, sometimes it is hard to believe something so great and so extraordinary as what Peter has just told these believers. To say to them, you're not just scattered, you're the chosen of God, the beloved of God, the elect of God, the born again of God. You are the living stones. And so the Spirit of God uses the entirety of this section, but at the end of it, to say to those of us who are tempted to forget those things, because the world, the flesh, and the devil all conspire to say to us, you can't actually be those things. There's no way those things can be true of you. A, look at yourself. B, look at your circumstances. Do you seem to you to be those things? The Spirit of God speaking through this letter then, through the apostle, assures the believers then and us now of our identity, of who we are. And the way that the Spirit of God does it is says, I'm going to take these extraordinary terms that we find in our text that belong so uniquely to the people of Israel, and I'm going to wrap them around you. I'm going to put you around them. The Spirit of God takes the royal robe of Israel and adorns 
the church Catholic, the church universal. This is what we have in our text today, a royal investiture with a formal declaration that says, this is who you are. Those moments that I quoted, think of, of Abraham, think of uh, Jacob, those moments in which the Lord changes the names, and I could have obviously added others to that list as well, those are critical moments. Those are pivotal moments that take place. I want you to understand the text today that is exactly that. You are no longer not a people. You, you shall no longer be called by these old names that used to characterize you. Instead, this is what you shall be called as. This is who you are. Listen to me. I'm declaring it. I'm formally putting these things upon you. There are, in the verses that I've read for us, six titles that are given in these verses. There are four of them in verse 9. There are two of them in verse 10. And while these phrases can be found in a number of places in the Old Testament, they perhaps primarily come from the law and the prophets. And what I have done for you is, uh, I, on page 7 of your bulletins, I've put additional verses that basically provide, not exclusively or not uh, fully in any sense, but at least representationally, the kind of verses that are used and the kind of passages that are used here by Peter to gather up these titles that he's using and apply them to the people. This isn't all of them, but at least I'll reference these so that we understand where these things are coming from. So together with those passages that you find on page 7 and the extended reading that we did from Isaiah 43, we'll see uh, from which uh, Peter draws to put upon us. What I'd like to do now, then, is just to make a few comments on each of the titles that are put upon us. And we begin with where this section begins. You are a chosen race. That's who you are. You are a chosen race. You can find that phrase in Deuteronomy. You can find it in Isaiah as well. Chosen, of course, means, and we've already pointed this out in the course of the, the sermons over the past few weeks, chosen means selected and elected. And it's the thing that began the letter. This is the exact same word. We just translate it two ways, elect and chosen. He began the letter with, you are elect exiles, and now he's finishing this major section saying, you're a chosen race. That is who you are, and you are that because, because Jesus is the one who was chosen and precious of the Father. And so Peter is saying, you are that. You are not random. You're not rejected. You're not aimlessly scattered about in the world. You're not outcasts. Instead, you are chosen by the Lord, and the Lord, in choosing you, has set his love upon you. The age-old question is, why would God choose us, and why would God set his love upon us? And the age-old answer is, because God chose us and set his love upon us. In the middle of page 7, you find Deuteronomy 10, 15. 
Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. You are chosen, and you are a chosen race. Now, race, of course, would be a term as it's translated for us or as it's used then, usually reserved for a particular lineage. But now Peter's clearly referring to multiple races, multiple ethnicities. We've been born again. How did you get into your race in the first place? Well, you got into your race in the first place because you were born into your race. That's how you get into a race. Well, Peter has started off by saying, by the way, you're born again. And how did your race get to be your race so that you were part of it? Well, it's because of your parents, right? I suppose your parents were probably part of that race that makes you part of that race. Peter has said, now, you have a new father. You have a new, you've been born again. You have a new father. You belong to a new race. Now, together, you are a chosen race of people. It doesn't change the reality that we may have a, a lineage or a race that we can trace back. That's whatever it might be, Italian or German or something else. But nevertheless, it is now superseded in a race that includes people from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. You are a royal priesthood. That is from Exodus 19.6, again on page 7. You shall be to me, this is the Lord speaking to Israel in a deeply covenantal context right before Sinai, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, this is a national reference. We know, of course, that within this kingdom of priests, there would be those who are particularly appointed to the role of the priesthood. So Aaron and then the Levites would be particularly appointed to be priests within this kingdom of priests. But right now, and in Exodus 19, it can apply to all of Israel. They're a kingdom of priests, and now to us as well. As a priesthood, we minister in the spiritual house. Peter just described the building of the spiritual house. Well, what does the priesthood do in the spiritual house? Well, the priesthood offers sacrifices in the spiritual house. As a royal priesthood, we enjoy the presence of the king. We are allowed access to the king because we are a royal priesthood. As a priesthood, worship is central. If you were a priest in the Old Testament, you spent all of your time in and around the temple or the tabernacle engaged in the worship of God. Well, if you are a royal priesthood, what that says to us is that our lives are to be lives of worship. That's the center of our lives. That's the center of our church as well Is this activity in which we are engaged right now. And of course, the other thing that the priests did in the Old Testament is the priests mediated the Lord to the people. They were the ones through whom the Lord was mediated to the people. And the idea then of a kingdom of priests is that Israel mediates the Lord to the nations who are around her. And now for us being a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, we, the church, are those who mediate the Lord to the world. 
and bring the world to Christ. Third, you are a holy nation. This, again, is from Exodus 19. Israel was to be a distinct nation, not like the nations who were around her, in that she was a redeemed people, and as this redeemed people chosen by the Lord, God covenanted with this people and gave this people his law, gave this people his word so that the people could know him, be in relationship with him, and so that they would follow this word that God had given to them. Now, Peter recognizes, and his readers recognize as well, that the church is no longer constituted as a national entity. So the idea of the nation here becomes a metaphor, and the, the, the essential part becomes the fact that you're a holy nation, that you're, that you're different. You're different in what you believe. You're different in your practices from those who are around you. And what we will find is that the reality of that sets us apart from, it sets us in contrast to, and sometimes against the people who are around us. Many of us are feeling right now, in this nation in particular, that we are more and more unique. We are more and more ostracized and put into a corner as people because our beliefs and our practices don't go along with what the world says. Well, that's part of our priestly function. That's part of what it means to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're different from the people around us. And that very difference may be used by the Lord to either convict people to show them to be guilty of the sins that they are committing of not listening to the word of the gospel, or it may be that very thing which causes people to be drawn to the gospel. That's what it means to be a holy nation. We are different. We will always be different as the people of God. Sometimes we'll feel it more than other times. You are, fourthly, a people for God's own possession. Uh, maybe this is one of my favorites here, but uh, Exodus 19.5, again, uh, on page 7. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Or from what we read in Isaiah 43, I have called you by name, you are mine. You are the people that I formed for myself. We confess this together. What's your only comfort in life and in death? Your only comfort in life and in death, or my only comfort in life and in death, is that I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul and life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong. I am most wondrously, gloriously, lovingly possessed owned by another. And the Lord tells us the character of that possession in what we read in Isaiah 43, verse 4, and Jack read it well and paused beautifully over these words. Of course, all of us can imagine being possessed by another to be a little bit scary. It sounds weird. It sounds awful. 
But the Lord's possession is this, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. That's the nature of the possession. We are possessed by that God. Fifth and sixth, and this is in verses, verse 10 here, and these two kind of go together. Uh, but you are, who are you? You are God's people. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Now you are God's people. And then with it, the sixth one is related to it. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I dangerously, because the passage is so complex, let me just refer to Isaiah 19, which is on page 7 as well. There's a picture in Isaiah 19 of a coming day when there will be a highway that stretches between Egypt and Assyria with Israel in the middle of it. And verse 25 says, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. To me, whenever I read that, and when I read Egypt, my people, I can't help but think, what would I have thought of that verse if I was an Israelite reading that verse? I would have thought, Isaiah, you are out of your mind. Egypt is the enemy. Egypt is not my people. We're my people, not Egypt. And yet Isaiah, or the Lord through Isaiah says, no, 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 there's a day coming. There's a day coming when even those Egyptians are going to be called my people. Now, when we go to the next part of it, when it says, once you were not a people, who had a people who did not have mercy, and now you are the people of God who have received mercy, let me show you how, just like chosen, this is Iraq. If you look at uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles open, if not, I'll just read it for you. Chapter th uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, and everything else launches all the way up to this point. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, etc., etc., what comes along. Now we wrap that all the way right here at the end. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. That's the frame. Everything that he has just said about your identity and about what the Lord has done for you and the preciousness of the Lord, the preciousness of your faith is framed in, hemmed in, by the mercy of God. According to his mercy, he did it, and now you are the recipients of that mercy. But these two phrases here, the, the idea that once you were not a people, now you are a people, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy, are most literally coming from the book of Hosea, the prophet, in that story, which is in and of itself a living parable. Hosea's unfaithful wife, Gomer, bears children. One of the children is a girl whom God says, name that girl, no mercy. The third child, another child, is born as a son. And God says, name that boy, not my people. No mercy and not my people. And the idea here is that God is communicating, listen, Israel, you have committed spiritual adultery, idolatry before me. And as a result, your judgment is, as these kids are named, no mercy and not my people. But then we see that the Lord keeps his promises, as we saw in Isaiah 
uh, chapter 43, and if you want to look at the last phrase there that's found on page 7 in Hosea 2, this is what the Lord says, there's going to be a name change. There's going to be a name change, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. Now, in context, in Hosea, God is saying that specifically to his people, to the Jewish nation. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to once again call you my people. But Peter here looks at it and says, you know what? That's true then, but it's got an even greater fulfillment now because now Egypt and Assyria and all of the world who confesses faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the world is called those who have received mercy and those who are my people who believe in me. Six, then, identity statements. Two comments on the identity statements. Remember, first of all, that these are corporate. These are not individual identity statements. They're corporate statements. They wouldn't make sense if you tried to think of them in isolation from your brothers and sisters who are around you right now. Now, that said, they belong to you individually, and you can think about them and apply them individually, but then that feeds our corporate identity as well. So the corporate identity helps you to understand who you are and then feeds back into the corporate as well. Second comment, this is not an exercise in self-identity. This isn't standing in front of the mirror trying to say, who am I? And just keeping looking at the mirror, who am I? Who? Who are you? Who, who am I looking in the mirror? It's not standing in front of the mirror and saying, I'm confident, I'm strong, I'm good looking, I'm smart, and as it turns out, I'm special. And other people have said I'm special as well. This is not that. This is God himself declaring what he has done and declaring who it has made you to be. This is not self-identification that is taking place. This is God-identification that is taking place. It is trustworthy and it is true because God has done it and God says it. In Isaiah 43, which is the entirety of the context of this, God says, I work. And who can turn it back? God is the one who has done the work. God is the one who's created. God is the one who has formed. God is the one who has redeemed. God is the one who has called. And God makes the declaration of identity. I declared, I saved, I proclaimed. There's a really interesting little subtle shift that takes place in Isaiah 43. In the first verse it says, I have called you by name and we love it because it's intimate and, it per and it's personal. I've called you by name. In verse 7 it, the Lord says, I've called you my name. My name. You, you're mine. I've put my name on you. I've not only called you by your name but you've been called in my name. I declared it. God did it, and you are it. But that's not it. That's not all. Because as great as identity is, as much as identity gives us a sense of belonging, it gives us a sense of security, it gives us a sense of knowing who our people are, who my people. 
You're my people. It gives us a sense of love. Identity does all of those things, but identity begs to be lived. It begs to be lived. I'm glad that I have the identity of being a husband or being a father or being a pastor. I'm glad to have those. I'm, if we can say it this way, more glad to actually live those because identity wants to be lived out. Identity yields mission and purpose, and it does so in this text with absolute clarity. Why are you all of those things? What does the, what's the implication of all of these things? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what you do because you are those terms that have been called upon us. You live out your identity in proclamation, in declaration of all of the beauty, of all of the moral virtue, of all of the moral excellencies of the work and the person of God. And all that Peter is doing in this passage is he's just riffing on Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, in verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. In verse 12, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. In verse 21, you are the people, the chosen people, whom I have formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Your identity is formed so that you can do this. Declare the praise. Declare the excellencies. We live out then this identity, and now I have to put in last week and this week and put them together in two ways. In our lives, right? Verse 5, that's what we talked about last week. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. That's what you do with your life. All of your life is a sacrifice, as an offering to God. That's what you do because of who you are. In our lives and then in our words. In the proclamation of the excellencies of God in worship. In the declaration of the excellencies of God unto the world. In worship and unto the world. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And we declare it unto him, we witness unto him, and we declare it and witness it out to the world. He is God, and there is no other. Who are you? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now who you are, you are recipients of mercy. What do you do with that? Well, let's just hear it as we close with the verse on the front of your bulletin. What do you do with that identity? Hear it in the words of the writer of Hebrews. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Now, we get that. That's the message from last week, right? Not, a, not an earthly, man-made city, but the city of God. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What do you do with that identity? You praise God with your lips. With your lips flowing from your heart, you praise God. You testify of God. And second part, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's what a royal priesthood does. You speak it with your lips, and you do it with your life. You do good, and you share with others. That's the sacrifice that God is looking for. You want to know what to do in the spiritual house. What are the sacrifices you're supposed to offer? Those are the sacrifices that through Jesus Christ are acceptable to the Father. This is the simple summary. Believe who you are, be who you are. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that we are not these things because we think we're these things, because we'd like to be these things, because we're striving after being these things. Jesus, we are these things because we're in you. And you have declared it to be so. Now, by your grace and strength, help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.